0: Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. HotelConnections.com Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines and Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. Seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com.
1: Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza. And along with Chris Trimes, we want to welcome you to another edition of the podcast.
2: Hey, Ben, and hello to all all of our listeners. Uh, We've got a fun show this week, and we appreciate your tuning in, so we'll get right to it. We've been talking a lot about the U.S. domestic industry the last few weeks, and we thought we'd change it up a bit and cover off some news out of Europe at the top of the show. First up, uh, European authorities look to be moving closer to the approval of IAG's acquisition of Air Europa. Beyond expanding the IAG network, it also tees up the likelihood that the combination of Iberia and Air Europa will turn Madrid into what IAG is calling a mega hub to rival Lufthansa at Frankfurt and KLM at Amsterdam. Some analysts are also watching how this deal might shift traffic over Madrid and away from London Heathrow since the UK hub for British Airways and the IAG network will be outside the Schengen area. Ben, if you're a UK Aviation Authority expert or industry analyst over there, what would you be thinking about the role of London Heathrow uh, over the long term compared to how it's historically played out?
1: I've been fascinated by watching this story. Chris, IAG is obviously a, you know a big group in addition to Iberia, like you said, Aer Lingus and Vueling and others. And uh, Spain is a large, large travel market in its own right. It's in the Schengen area, like you said. It's also still part of the European Union, (laughs) which the UK is not. So there's all kinds of reasons, I think, that IAG might be saying we need to have alternatives to Heathrow as a way to connect traffic as traffic grows sort of, you know, they're thinking about this in a 10, 20 year vision, not just a near term COVID kind of vision. And I think it's probably more risky for Amsterdam and Frankfurt competing entities to IAG, as you said. It'll certainly affect Heathrow to some extent. I mean, the more opportunities there are to connect, the, the the more it'll affect pricing and so on. But London Heathrow and other European hubs have already been hit so much by the growth of the Middle Eastern carriers too. I mean, a lot of what used to historically connect over London Heathrow now connects through Dubai or Abu Dhabi or Doha. And so Heathrow has been going through this change of how do people travel using Europe as a connecting base into Eastern Europe, Africa, India, things like that. And so overall, if I were a UK aviation authority, I would think it's good that a British entity is sort of getting control of potentially a continental hub continental Europe, I mean, um, and Heathrow is going to be subject to what happens both post-COVID and sort of as traffic evolves in a Brexit sort of world, sort of not with the UK, not part of the EU. So Heathrow is going through this change anyway. I think as a UK aviation authority, I'd think this is a good thing because it's keeping the Brits involved Heathrow's such a big local market. It's such an important local market for London, which is the biggest single market in Europe, that I think the risk of maybe some connections going over Madrid are small compared to the opportunity to have a real strong competitor to Frankfurt and Amsterdam.
2: Yeah, I, I think you're spot on there. I mean, Heathrow, between the Middle East carrier impact and then the siphoning of traffic from EasyJet and Ryanair over the years, I mean, Heathrow's absorbed a lot of what they're likely to face uh, already. So I I think this impacts more Amsterdam and Frankfurt and maybe secondary hubs for, you know, like at Munich. Um, So certainly more connecting traffic over Madrid. That'll mean more nonstop traffic as you build up the market uh, for residents of Madrid. But uh, I I think uh, Heathrow is going to be Heathrow and it's going to look differently. It already does, but I don't think this is going to be any kind of a death knell or or anything to that effect. And and then, Ben, this is right up your alley. Uh, I saw this and kind of thought of you right away for some reason. Uh, The French long-haul leisure airline based at Orly, French B is the name of the carrier, flies a fleet of Airbus 350s. They are currently configured for 411 seats. That's compared to the 327 seats in the Cutter fleet and 331 seats in a British Airways A350. But now French B is going to take two more of these aircraft in 2021, and they're going to configure them with 488 seats. No doubt this will make French B the most efficient long-haul airline operating, but I wonder if this is kind of like being the tallest midget here. Will passengers fly this aircraft more than once, Ben? You, you've been down this road. Uh, will it work?
1: Well, you know, I'm skeptical of this for a couple of reasons. The aviation world has not seen a lot of success with long haul low cost. And certainly a 488 seat configured A350 will have lower seat costs than probably anything else flying across the transatlantic. And that means French B realistically could economically offer lower fares and people are always looking for cheap tickets when they go anywhere. So I don't think that they will do bad in terms of attracting traffic. But the challenge with low-cost long-haul, there are two, two or three big challenges, and French B is going to have them. One of them is even cost-inefficient carriers like a British Airways or Delta, for example, you know they're good airlines, but they're not so cost-efficient, even those carriers are pretty low-cost when they fly a really big airplane a long distance. When you're looking at cost per ASM, available seat mile, or available seat kilometer, when you fly a big airplane, a long distance, you're putting a lot of numbers in that denominator. (laughs) So when you divide that into the cost, you get a pretty low number. So within Europe, Ryanair can get a massive cost advantage to carriers like British Airways and uh, Lufthansa, just like in the US, carriers like... Spirit Frontier and even a little higher cost carriers like JetBlue and Alaska can get big cost advantages over American United and Delta. But it's much harder to get that kind of cost advantage on a long haul flight with a big airplane because they're not that high cost on those trips. So that's one. It's going to be hard for them to be enough lower cost to be able to really pressure price In other words, it's going to be easy, I think, for British Airways and others to match their prices when they need to and make it harder for them to keep those planes filled. The second thing is those A350s are a great airplane, but boy, are they expensive. And they're paying for that plane every month and traffic between the U.S. and Europe and Asia and Europe is highly seasonal. And they're not going to be able to make money with those airplanes 12 months out of the year. And the question is, how many months a year are they going to be able to make money with that airplane? And in the months they're not, they're going to be paying a lot of money every month for that airplane. You know, you can lease a a new a320 or 737 for big round numbers around 300,000, 350,000 a month or so on something like that but a 350 is going to cost you three or four times that amount, maybe even five times that amount. So if you're looking at a month where it's hard to fill in the winter, there's a lot of those months, you're saddled with that and that makes it really hard. That's why smaller carriers like Wow Air who's gone out of business like Norwegian, who's canceled their long haul flying. It just is really a challenge for for that. And the last thing, I know I've been talking a lot here, (laughs) but the last thing is the longer you fly, the more that the low cost compromises that low cost airlines ask you to take, tight seating, not a lot of food, not a lot of IFE, things like that. The more those things become liabilities, the longer you go. You might be very willing to sit in a tight seat and get nothing to eat and nothing to do on the plane on a two and a half hour flight, but on an eight hour, nine hour, 12 hour flight that you can do with these A350s, those things aren't quite as palatable. So I think French B is gonna be efficient but not efficient enough and they're going to be saddled by huge costs in the off season. And I just don't feel good about this airline. Am I too negative?
2: No. Um I, I admit to kind of reading about French bee and 488 seats and thinking right away of a beehive <laughs> and people crawling and swarming over <laughs> each other and just a very unpleasant experience. So, um, you know, I, Look, we all wish them well, I guess, but it's not my cup of tea when it comes to travel. So um, I got to take a pass here. But I think you're spot on with with regard to the analysis.
1: Well, we've got more Airlines Confidential, but first we want to thank Clear. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports across the U.S., moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com slash airlines. So, Chris, I've got one news item for your reaction. The German-based online hotel site Travago recently completed a survey of Americans and Brits about their aspiration for travel related to the pandemic. Their results were pretty similar on both sides of the pond. 20% 20% of the respondents said they would give up their partner if they could freely travel right now. Nearly half would give up their job, and 40% would give up sex for a year if they could travel anywhere without restrictions. Do you think people like travel that much, Chris? <laughs> uh,
2: I'd like to know how these re- results would change if people... If- the respondents were told they had to travel with 487 other people in the back of a <laughs> A350 on, on French B. Um, would they give up sex or quit their job if those were uh, conditions for the deal is uh, the unknown uh, question here. You know, I don't find those that all that surprising. Is uh, yes, we've talked about, uh, I, I'm in the cruise sector now, and our advanced bookings patterns are much different from airlines. And so it's much further out, but you know, we are more heavily booked for 2022 right now than we were for 2019 a year out. You so, mean with the cruise line, right? Correct. So we're, we're seeing a lot of pent up demand. I, I've seen other survey results where, you know, what's the first thing you're going to do when you can. And, Clearly, travel is near the top of the list for a lot of people. So, you know, I think that's kind of spot on. I'm not going to talk about whether people want to give up sex or not for travel, Um, but I I think it it reflects the pent up demand and how ingrained travel is to our culture and our society and how much uh, people miss it. So hopefully that's that pretends for good things for the airline business.
1: I agree with you, Chris. And actually, I was encouraged by this uh, survey because, of course, people wouldn't have to do any of those things, right? Give up their job or give up their partner or anything. And so it's it kind of makes the point about how much people want to travel. And that's why I was kind of encouraged by this survey.
0: The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, pandora spotify TuneIn, and many more use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com
2: ben our first listener question is from dan in san diego hello gentlemen one recent night i noticed a jet flying southeast over san diego i could hear it and its contrail was illuminated by moonlight it was a lovely sight I was curious as to what it was, and I checked Flight Tracker and saw it was a Cutter flight 8916 from LAX to Mexico City. I was surprised as to why was Cutter flying that route. A little more investigation showed it was a weekly flight using QR equipment, not some code share operated by a U.S. or Mexican carrier. I can imagine how a QR777 might have a 24-hour overnight in LAX once a week and thus provide the opportunity to fly the LAX Mexico LAX service, but I have a hard time imagining that U.S. and or Mexico would permit a third country's airline to do this. Seems like a completely unexpected fifth freedom event. It does not seem to be the first leg of an LAX Mexico Doha service as the return flight back to LAX is listed. Wondering if you can comment.
1: Very interesting question from Dan in San Diego. I looked this up too, and all his facts are correct, of course. <laughs> and uh, I can think of a couple things. First of all, as far as I know, Cutter does not have the right to fly legally between LAX and Mexico City and carry passengers. Now, there are, if we have some listeners who have a reason to say that's not true, please let us know. But I can think why they might do it. There are flights, it could be what's called an ACMI or a leased operation where Cutter is the operator, but maybe the people on that airplane were actually sold by. You know, it could have been a US carrier that has that right, or by a Mexican carrier that has that right. So they could have been operating it as the operator, and it would show on Flight Tracker as their flight since they are the operator of the flight. But it might not have been a commercial operation for Cutter. That's one thing. The second thing is uh, it could be a maintenance rotation. Perhaps they're having their maintenance done in Mexico on that plane. I think that's less likely than it being an ACMI, which is also known as a wet lease. Stands for the, you know, the the operator provides the airplane and the pilots and the fuel and the maintenance and everything to operate that. You know, when I worked at Taka Airlines, Chris, we had a couple of A319s based in New Zealand. And we flew the Trans-Tasman routes from New Zealand to Australia for Air New Zealand. But those flights were dispatched from El Salvador, and they were on flight tracker as TACA flights. So Dan's, you know, long-lost cousin in New Zealand might have seen a Taka airplane at night and say, what the heck's that plane from Central America doing over here? And it would have been the same kind of thing. So I'm guessing that's what explains this. Certainly if we have any listeners who work at Cutter or who know more about why Cutter has this flight, that would be great to hear. But that's my speculation. You have an idea that I didn't think about, Chris?
2: Well, Fifth Freedom Rights are like This mysterious thing that's a hangover from an era gone by, it's very misunderstood. There's still just some really odd uh, rights hanging around. Uh, I saw just last week where Emirates is going to restart their Newark to Athens nonstop service. So there's certainly these pockets of exceptions that don't make any sense. Uh, For geeks, uh, I was looking to find a list, and I'm sure there's other places, but if they Google AustralianFrequentFlyer.com and Fifth Freedom Rights, they, they publish a list of all the Fifth Freedom flights that are operating. So people can go there and look, But um, and I didn't have time, frankly, to look to see if this LAX Mexico City was on the list, but I did find the list. So I think this is an invita- invitation for our listeners to kind of join the discussion and tell us what we're
1: missing here. Well, Chris, another good listener questioner. This from Matt in New York. Chris and Ben, what can airline economics and management teach us about future issues of spaceship management? With SpaceX, Boeing, Amazon, and Virgin Galactic vying aggressively as the big four of citizen space travel, and the fact that investors are pouring excitement, that means money, into these companies, do we avgeeks have some important wisdom to share? After all, there are a lot of parallels with high capital expense and high operating expense, strict regulations, stressful union relationships, significant environmental issues and vital safety concerns. Surely we should impart some measured enthusiasm about how the space tourism industry might not be as stellar to manage as it first appears. What a great question.
2: Uh, It was a great question. So Matt, Ben and I have both been through multiple mergers, acquisitions, and changes in management. Uh, I personally have learned that people don't really want advice unless they ask for it. So I'm guessing that the level of valuable input differs based on who's on the other side of the table with regard to how they view it as valuable. You know, for Boeing... They've got deep connections in both commercial aviation and aerospace, and we can be certain they're leveraging all that knowledge appropriately. Amazon is essentially in the airline business now with their very vibrant cargo car car operations, so they know to wh- where to look for guidance. And yeah, you know, Virgin has similar connections. I personally don't think Elon Musk particularly cares about learning from the airline industry. I'm certain he's dedicated to safety, and he's hired smart people, With the right experience to help them with that, but I don't know about offering unsolicited advice um, and whether it will have an impact. Uh, SpaceX is trying to build a new paradigm, not copy an existing one is my take as I read about them. Uh, I I was reading an interesting piece from CNBC this past week where private companies like SpaceX and Amazon's Blue Origin are driving costs down across the space platform, including for Boeing and even NASA. And freeing up NASA capital to pursue other initiatives because their commercial initiatives for SpaceX and Amazon are much more nimble and efficient. So, yeah, there's things to be learned but we need students on the other side who are interested in learning
1: them. (laughs) Chris, I think you're exactly right. There's another big difference, I think, between what these companies are doing, trying to commercialize space flight. Obviously, initially, if they can do things cheaper than NASA to bring satellites up, to bring things to space stations and things like that, that's, that's good. And that's good use of capital and And it's great to have some of that in the private sector, too, I think. But from a commercial tourism standpoint, there's a big difference. You know, economists call airline travel an intermediate good, meaning that it's something that's required for the final product. People are on airplanes on this planet not because they want to be on the airplane, but because they need to be on the airplane to get their business done, to go on vacation, to get home, whatever they're doing. And in a way, it's almost like a necessary evil. And Some people certainly enjoy the flights themselves, but they wouldn't be on the airplane if they didn't have something to do with the other end. Space tourism, at least in our lifetime, is all about being on the, on the plane or the craft in space, And seeing the earth from a different perspective, seeing the universe in a different perspective, and it's about the trip. It's not about where you go. And that makes it almost a completely different business in terms of what customers' price elasticity is going to be, the way they're going to think about whether they want to take this trip or not whether they would, whether there would be repeat customers or not, or whether this is a, you do it once and you've done it kind of thing. So in many ways, even though there's people going places on, you know, an airworthy type product, whether it's a plane or a rocket or some combination, the businesses aren't anything similar in my view.
2: You point to a longstanding issue for the airline business, which is Airlines and airline travel is a means to an end, right? So people don't want to pay $25 for an aisle seat or to check their bags, but they will happily pay $25 for a pina colada once they get to the resort. So, you know, putting value to airline travel has always been the challenge for the business and how to maintain pricing power. So it's a good question for Matt. Matt there's certainly lessons to be learned across a variety of things, but, uh, you point out that they're really kind of different businesses.
1: Well, you're listening to Airlines Confidential. Finer Wine is next, but first we want to thank Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotel Connections is a Fortune 1000 company that makes travel management easier and less expensive with their AI-powered booking applications, intelligent learning algorithms, customizable rules engines, analytics and global negotiated rate programs. For travel, logistics, hotels, transport, and technology solutions, visit hotelconnections.com. Chris, here's a finer wine for you to judge, and it's from Joanne in Edmonton, Alberta, talking about Delta Airlines. Immediately upon sitting in our assigned seats, which were located in front of the seats with the emergency exits, we noticed that the seatbacks were positioned in a straight-up position. The backs of the seat were curved, so our upper backs curved into them. The headrests pushed our heads forward so that our backs were in a C-shaped position and our heads hung forward. After takeoff, we discovered that nothing about the seats were adjustable. They were fixed in that position for the entire flight. The position we were in was just not uncomfortable, but very painful both to my neck and back as well as to that of my companion. Chris is this fine or is she whining?
2: Joanne, this sounds like a miserable flight. I will I will grant you that. But those seats were configured that way because they were in front of the exit row and required specific egress under the FAA regulations. So I hate to ding you for whining, but with resources like Seat and other online resources, it always pays to check to see more information about the aircraft, the airline, and the seat configurations before you reserve a seat. What we don't know based on her information is whether she chose those seats or were they assigned to her at the gate by an agent. Unfortunately, if it was a full flight, someone had to sit there. But I think it was ultimately a lack of information. If she was assigned those seats at the gate, frankly, the agent should have told her. If she booked them, then she should have done a little research. So... I'm mean, going to have to give you a, a whine,
1: but I feel for you. I feel for her too. Now, I will say, she makes this sound like these seats were really, really terrible, and they they probably were from her standpoint. My guess is that Delta has thought about what those seats actually are like. And while seats can't recline to block access to the emergency door in an emergency, There are certainly ways to make those non-movable seats somewhat comfortable to sit in and not sort of in a C-shaped position as Joanne described. So I'm hoping that there are some people at Delta who are listening to this who go look at that airplane and say maybe there's something we can do to those seats to make them a little more comfortable even though we understand that they can't move because of where they're located on the airplane. But like you said... Somebody's gonna to have to sit there if the flight's full.
2: Well, Ben, we're gonna wrap up this week's show and close with our shout-outs. I'd like to give a shout-out to the CEOs of the major U.S. Airlines who met with White House officials this past week to affirm their support for the development of greener, cleaner aviation fuels and to urge for tax incentives and to urge for tax incentives for those fuels and the development of other clean energy resources in any forthcoming economic stimulus or energy legislation. As we've talked about previously, it's important for industry leaders to drive solutions rather than have things forced upon them. And I think uh, they're moving in the right direction with regard to managing this.
1: That's great, Chris. That's a great shout out. My shout out goes to the TSA. And that's a strange group to be shouted out to, I think. But my shout out goes to the fact that they're out there right now hiring 6,000 new agents for this summer. And they say to support the summer travel surge. So I certainly hope the TSA is right about that. And while we sit here now and don't know exactly what summer travel is going to be like, I like the bullishness and optimism and practicality of the TSA for saying what we don't want to have happen is for people ready to travel again after they have their vaccine and then face really, really long lines in the airports. So go TSA, hire those people. It's good for employment and be ready for the travel whether it's there or not. Until next week, I'm Chris Chimes. And I'm Ben Baldanza. This has been Airlines Confidential.
0: This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.